Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. We hope you will engage with the wisdom of our tradition and our take on current events, as interpreted by the clergy, teachers, and guest lecturers of Central Synagogue. You can also access our weekly sermons by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to learn more about our congregation or watch our live stream services, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, so I want to welcome all of you to this uh, event, Are the Kids All Right? We have, as I've been speaking about with many of you and many of our clergy have been speaking about, we've been hearing from a lot of you what a stressful time this is for you, for your children. And so um, we want you to know that we're here to support you. And uh, one of the ways that we can support you is by bringing in people who are really experts in this, um, who can provide an opening for this conversation. And we are very, very lucky to have with us moderating this conversation, Abby Pogrebin, who uh, is the author of a number of books, including My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, she moderates a lot of public events at the JCC and the Stryker Center and UJA, and you've probably seen her around. She's super involved in Central, and she is the immediate past president, so you may have seen her uh, sitting on our BIMA on Shabbat. So I'm going to turn it over now to Abby to uh, introduce. And if you have questions, you can send them directly to Abby in the chat. Great beginning. Hello, everybody. Again, it's Abby Pogrevin. Um, thank you, Rebecca, or Rabbi Rosenthal, I should say, for a really generous intro and a huge shout out uh, to Rabbi Rosenthal, who, as we all know, is our fearless steward of a incredible religious school um, and young youth education engagement program, particularly at a time where it has never been more challenging to keep children engaged. And she has done it in spades. Um, and a huge shout out to Rebecca Nicole Auerbach, my friend and other director of adult engagement, who has been a really helpful guide through this. And um, for tomorrow night, which will also be important, um, she's been very key there. And uh, Lauren Dickel, who's also helpful. So that's the love in for Central. And now I've got to give a little love in for um, Dr. Kopowitz, because I am not just a journalist coming at this. I am someone who's had personal experience with my family with CMI, Child Mind Institute, which he started, what is it, 11 years ago, Harold? Yes, or 11, exactly 11 years. This November 11 11. Not that I remember, but um, without going into the personal details of my family, I will say that um, it was a game changer and it's a place I couldn't recommend more highly, which I just mentioned because when they asked me to moderate this, it really was a privilege to be able to talk to someone and I admire so much. And now, Harold, I'm not going to let you speak until I introduce you properly. Um, you're an MD, congratulations, <laughs> um, and founding president, medical director of the Child Mind Institute, which is one of, I think we all know, the nation's leading child and adolescent um, 
places for treatment and research in psychiatry. He's known as an innovator in the field. I hope he'll talk a little bit about the research he's doing on the brain in addition to the remarkable um, avenues for treatment that he has done for years. He's a strong advocate for child mental health and a master clinician. And he's been recognized as we all know in best doctors in America and best doctors in New York and America's top doctors. Um, and he's been the editor in chief of the Journal of Child and Adolescent psychopharmacology forever. And I will just also say that we want your questions and, and we're gonna have a conversation, but I really want as brave as you can be without having to identify particular children for you to share anything that you're seeing in your own kids or in your own friends' kids or just in your own lives because Harold can span the gamut both from age two and three to age 20. Um, I think Child Mind treats up to 24 and his expertise obviously predates Child Mind by decades. So welcome Harold, now you can say something. It's my pleasure. And um, I, I, this is not the first time I've had a conversation with Abby. So I'm looking forward to you know really exploring not only COVID related anxiety, but where we were with children's mental health before COVID hit. And I think that's the important part we have to remember. So I would tell you our kids are not okay. It's not all of our kids, but there are too many children in the United States who were suffering before COVID happened. It's literally 17 million kids under the age of 24 who have a mental health disorder. So how does that compare to other diseases? There's 15,000 kids in America who have cancer. There are 200,000 with diabetes, there's 7 million with asthma, and another 7 million with peanut allergy. So if you add up all of those to over 14 million, it still doesn't equal the number of children who have a mental health disorder. That means one out of five, which means everyone on this phone, uh, on this Zoom, uh, literally knows and loves one of these kids. So it's not your son or daughter, it's your niece or nephew, it's your best friend's child, or it's your child's best friend. So um, it's a national tragedy, in my opinion, since only 40% of that 17 million ever get any help. And uh, then when you have a stressor like COVID, it makes, uh, the, it certainly puts certain kids at more risk. And one of the things we should talk about is who's at risk and what the difference is between being totally and completely overwhelmed and demoralized by this global pandemic versus having a real disorder that is causing you great distress and dysfunction. So let's just start with how the landscape has changed in these last eight months. Like what are some of the things you're seeing that we wouldn't necessarily say you've never seen before, but you're seeing in greater numbers or you're seeing sort of a, a kind of a heightened sense of some of these, I don't know if you wanna call them hurdles, disorders, um, depressions, so, difficulties. So let's just look first of all at the buckets that kids fall into. The good news, 60% of American kids are typically developing happy-go-lucky, really remarkably resilient, whether their parents get divorced, whether their parents have financial stress, whether they're doing well in school, whether they make the football team or not, that's 60%, that's a big bucket. There's 15% of the population that are subclinical. These are the kids who are a little more quirky, maybe a little more inattentive, maybe a little more moody, maybe a little more worried, but they never make it to a mental health professional because their symptoms are never that significant to cause distress and dysfunction. And then you have the 20% who have a real mental health disorder and 40% of them get help and 60% of them don't. 
and then you're left over with 5%. 5% have very severe illness. They may have schizophrenia, they have a lot, they really lose touch with reality, or they have very low functioning autism, where they literally have no language or ability to communicate. So typically, in these kind of tra tragic events, that 5% isn't affected because they're either intellectually or emotionally disconnected. Well, during this global pandemic, everybody's mental health is affected because that 5%, the supply chain has been affected. So maybe the medicines that they need are not arriving at the drugstore. When there was a lockdown, their group therapy programs, their day programs, their social groups have been disbanded. And for the 20% that have a mental health disorder, they're more symptomatic than ever. And the 15%, those kids who were subclinical, this is a much greater stressor and they become more symptomatic. So what we're seeing, Abby, is the fact that we're seeing high levels of moodiness, of anxiety and worry that we haven't seen before. And so what we look for are the worst outcomes. And what the worst outcomes would be suicide attempts and people who die of suicide. And you have to remember that the riskiest time for suicide is youth, is adolescence. The adolescent brain is different than a children's brain or an adult brain. They tend to be incredibly intense. I hate you, I love you, I'm boiling, I'm freezing. There's no, I'm cool, I'm warm, I like you. So they don't have strategic brains, they impulsively behave. So four years ago, the suicide rate for 14 to 24 year olds was 5,000. 5,000 young people died of suicide four years ago. The suicide rate- right, Stop you, say that number again, because I don't want people to be worried 5,000 5, young people between the ages of 14 and 24, four years ago, the annual rate of people who died from suicide was 5,000. Last year, before COVID, the rate went up to 6,120. The number of young people who go to emergency rooms because of suicidal thoughts or suicidal actions four years ago was 600,000 a year. That was one per minute. Uh, now it's 1.2 million, which is before COVID, two per minute in the United States of a young person going to an emergency room. So before COVID, there was enough stress and enough changes in our society and enough de new demands on teenagers that we already saw this bump. The newest reports that are coming out of the CDC is that those rates are jumping now in the past six to eight months by 20% again. So that means that the riskiest kids are the kids who suffer from anxiety and mood and people who are in the adolescent age group. That's who we have to worry about most during this kind of global pandemic. And the fact that we most probably only have eight months left of this, we're halfway through this marathon, for someone my age, eight months is not a big deal. Considering how old I am, you know, I'll blink, it'll be eight months. But if you're a teenager, it's an eternity. And so we'll talk about how parents can help kids. Now we've been talking, Abby, right now about the riskiest kids. We haven't been talking about that 60% of how this is affecting everyone's mental health, not making them sick, not making them ill, not making them dysfunctional, but still having a negative effect on their mood and on their outlook and maybe even on their attention span and on their productivity. So I wanna, again, because I just don't wanna, we've started in a very kind of 
at the extreme end, which is the most terrifying. And I think it's important to touch on suicidal ideation because it's every mother, father's terror. But I also don't, I don't wanna over alarm people in the sense that just to give a realistic sense of the landscape, if you have a kid that is more down or more anxious, I mean, part of this is grounded in real truth. Things are more frightening right now. Am I right or am I no. trying? No, 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 Don't say, we're not sugarcoating it. Let's, let's talk about that. The human being responds to the environment. Demoralization is very different than depression. And for most of us, we're demoralized right now. And, and, and by the way, I am dangerously optimistic as a human being. You know, I started an independent nonprofit in the middle of an economic tsunami. So I am not, you know, I always think tomorrow is a better day. And considering that I'm the child of Holocaust survivors who thought that tomorrow was always gonna be a better day, it's genetic, obviously. You know, they just think, so let's remember, I'm very optimistic. That said, being locked in the apartment or being forced to do school on screens, being not unable to make out with my girlfriend, not being able to play football with my friends is demoralizing. And when we get demoralized, we have more difficulty paying attention. We have more difficulty sleeping. We, we are depression light. We look like we have the disease, but we're just responding to the environment. And since we're responding to the environment, parents can play a very big role in helping, particularly teenagers, but especially young kids and school-age kids, get out of this demoralized state because they can give their kids a new context on how they can deal with this, not eight months from now, but this week. How are we gonna get through this week? And how is this week going to, what are some of the guideposts that we can do to make this week better so that we can face next week? And one of the things I remember when, when we were relying on some of your experts many years ago was that it was really important to have a plan that it wasn't just like, we're gonna talk forever. Or we're gonna just kind of unpack your feelings. <clears throat> it was like, here's what we're gonna do together. And so what are just some of the things without knowing what anybody's particular experience is like right now? What are some of the general kind of guideposts, signposts or pillars of making a plan, especially when parents feel very unmoored right now? So I, I would tell you that working parents have two jobs, right? They have a job where they get paid and then they have the job, <clears throat> excuse me, of being a parent. Today, they are also a teaching assistant. They may be a playmate. They may actually be a tutor. They have many more things, <clears throat> excuse me, that they have to do and- Drink water, Harold. Thank you. And I think it depends on how old the child is. So why don't we stick with adolescence and then we're gonna go down to younger kids. I would tell you that I think it's really important to listen and to validate what your kid is experiencing. Forget about depression, forget about serious psychiatric disorders. Just the fact that your son or daughter is telling you that they're having a very tough time with distance learning, or they're having a very tough time with social distancing. I think it's exceptionally important for us to listen to them and to actually validate what they're experiencing and to also express to them that what they're experiencing is actually worse, particularly if they're a teenager or a college age student than what we're experiencing. It hands down, their loss is greater than ours. 
you can't fix it. I think most parents by nature, it's almost in our DNA, we wanna make it better. There's no way you're gonna make college experience better if they're doing it, you know, if they're in their dorm room and they can only uh, do classes online. You know, it's like they're at Phoenix University and that's not what they thought they were going to when they were gonna to go to Colby or Oberland or, or Brown or Harvard. So it's not as good. Um, and I think you can't fix it, but you can empathize, which is really important. Uh, the second thing you have to do is you have to really help them with solutions. And the solutions are not I always- solutions. Sorry, I wanna to get to solutions, but sometimes I've heard and I've seen, there's, there's a bit of the balance between uh, under, validating their, what their, their emotional struggles right now, which you just said very articulately, but also kind of saying, you still have it so good. Like you can only complain so much. Like you, you're, you're not know. living in the- So I think you have to be careful about that because, you know, talking about anecdotes, um, I mentioned that my parents were Holocaust survivors and remarkably resilient. My mother went back to school after being in law school before the war and became a social worker in the United States. And if I came home and said I had a bad day at school, my mother literally would say, well, the Holocaust is over. Your father's not in a concentration camp. What do you have to complain about? I was, you know, eventually I got strong enough to say, mom, I'm glad World War II is over. I still had a shitty day at school. So I think it's really important for teenagers to be able to tell their parents that they're missing out and they, they didn't get a junior prom. They didn't have a senior prom. They didn't get to, they, they can't go hang out on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum and, you know, or go for a walk and really make out. You just, it's too dangerous. You mean, you, you're making out with a mask is too hard. And so they have it worse than we do. And I think it's perfectly all right to let them vent and to listen to them and not have a solution to fix it. That isn't what we have to do. I think the flip side of that though, is to recommend, you know, you said something else that's number three, we'll go to three, which is gratitude. As bad as it is, I think it's essential that all of us express gratitude at least on a weekly basis. And I think that, you know, if Thanksgiving, you know, our family always tries to go work in a soup kitchen or, you know, do something, that, that's impossible. So this is the Thanksgiving where you should have gone and brought a whole bunch of soup, you know, cans to the food pantry and let someone else do it if you were too afraid to serve soup uh, to strangers. Uh, Hanukkah is coming. I always think it's a good idea that instead of getting eight, 10, 20 gifts from all the relatives that you say to your kid ahead of time, what would you like us to do for the one night where you won't get a present from us, mom and dad, you know, do you want to give it to the coalition for the homeless? Do you want to give it to, you know, the hospital? Do you want to give it to a COVID research center? It doesn't really make a difference where, and if you do it ahead of time, the kid can actually get a letter which says, thank you for it. And I think that once a week sitting around your table, whether it's Friday night, Sunday brunch, it doesn't really make a difference. What, this is an essential time right now to talk about gratitude. Why are we lucky today? And every parent and every person at the table comes up with why they think they're lucky. Um, and you know, I'm lucky that you know, the Trauma Institute's still seeing kids and I'm able to keep working. Uh, I'm lucky that you know, we're all healthy and each person does that once. And I think the modeling of that, even to teenagers while they're rolling their eyes and saying they have the nerdiest, worst parents in the world or uncoolest parents, I think it's really essential to keep doing that because while I'm willing to listen to you complain and vent, 
and recognize how bad it is for you. I'd, I'd like us to have a, you know, in the same way that we believe in a higher authority, which always makes us feel better that we're not the most important person in the world, that there's something more important than us. I think it's also important to recognize gratitude. And the only way you do that is by modeling. I mean, in our house, when the kids were little, Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just, you're talking about a very, I think a very Jewish frame also. And because you're a central member, I want to just acknowledge that. Um, in addition to the fact that we have our senior rabbi uh, joining us, although we, I told her not to come on camera because she's on sabbatical. So she has to be metaphorically separate. Well, um, we feel her presence. We definitely feel her presence. But, but I can tell you that when we used to light the candles and say the blessing over the wine and the hollow, we made our kids go around twice and we said, why are you lucky and why are you happy? And our kids would say, what's the difference? And we, we don't know, but you have to do it twice. Because in general, they were so good at telling us what was wrong. You know, I didn't do well in school. I didn't get on the team. Someone was mean to me. And I think there was ne there's never been a more important time to express gratitude than right now. Everyone on this screen, there's so much to be grateful for, but at the same time, we're overwhelmed. So I, I think, to balance out what you were, you were saying, you want to stop them from venting. I would let them vent as much as possible, but it, during another time of the week, I would talk about gratitude. And I think what I like about that is that you're orienting towards gratitude and not guilt. Correct. You're not, you know, put the Holocaust aside. That's right. your, that's <laughs> right. Correct. But even, you, know, you don't know how easy you have it. You know, you're, you have a roof over your head. We have food on the table. All these people are on food bank lines. But I, I think in a, a sort of an awareness of, of just what, how people are struggling right now does kind of balance the scales. Right. The, the guilt exactly. thing, I, I always think of Abe Lincoln. You know, when I was a kid, I walked five miles in the snow. Enough, you know, <laughs> Abe Lincoln's long dead. So let's, you know, you're having a tough time now, but it, uh, once a week, we as a family are going to celebrate how lucky we are, you know, and how fortunate. In between so there is seeking solutions, not easy. Not really easy. I mean, for younger kids, we'll shift just for a second. Hanukkah is usually an incredibly happy time. Thanksgiving sometimes is everyone's favorite holiday, right? You have all these relatives and all this food you like, and there's no prayers, you know, there's no service that you have to go to. And yet, and you get to make, you know, the kid learns from all my, you know, two of my kids, um, Actually, I see on the screen one of the nursery school teachers that actually was the nursery school teacher for one of my kids at the other synagogue. And, um, and nevertheless, you know, it was incredible joy, you know, making pictures of turkeys and talking about pilgrims. And this was a weird Thanksgiving. You I mean, it was very quiet. It was very small. It was Zooming with relatives. And, and yet, if you had a young kid, I think you have to figure out how are we going to make traditions that are going to be for this year only. The, the good news, it's only this Hanukkah, but the bad news is for a young kid, this Hanukkah is really important. And even though Hanukkah is what, December 10th, you know, and that's tomorrow, not for a kid. For, it's many days away. And so how are we as parents gonna make Hanukkah very special? Is this the year where we're gonna get five menorahs because it's such a special, you know, Hanukkah? Is this the year, that we're gonna make sure grandparents are on the Zoom call. Um, we are, it's our role as parents to give context to this. And so while it may not be as good as it was last year, it, it's gonna be different and it will be maybe better in a new way that will, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate 
you know, differently. And if we're going to go outside and see our neighbors, we're going to whisper when we sing songs. We're not going to, we're, you know, because there's a catchy virus out there and we don't want to catch so it. Let me just ask about when parents don't agree. And we've seen this with a lot of couples. Um, there isn't necessarily alignment on how the rules should be, whether relatives should come, whether the, they should get the rapid test or the PCR, where, you know, whether, you know, if a grandparent says, I don't care, I don't want to, I don't want to be alone. I'd rather be with you and risk, take a risk. And, you know, there's, there's not necessarily that people are seeing eye to eye on how to function right now, not to mention the information changes, you know, regularly. There's just a lot of stress everyone is carrying about how to navigate this. And, and I read a couple of things also, Child Mind um, the, on the website offers anecdotes about parents who are struggling even with like whether to insist a three-year-old wear uh, her mask going to the playground and she keeps ripping it off and one parent says she has to learn to keep it on and the other parent says for goodness sake she's outside some of these kind of these are small things that can end up being like big tensions right so we we you know we have this whole um theory when we talk about parenting you know there are different types the, the best type of parenting parenting is an authoritative parent someone who shows you warmth and control versus an autocratic parent only shows you control and a permissive parent only shows you warmth. And we assume that parents are going to have the same style. You know, that's foolishness. Parents have to negotiate to get into lockstep. And the reason for being in lockstep is that uncertainty makes kids anxious. Not, not the anxious kids, not the 15%, not the 20%, that 60% bucket of those healthy, typically developing kids, they can smell the, the split. And it's always better to negotiate. And one of you has to give in, even though you might not believe what the other person uh, believes, but somebody has to give in and it should be done behind closed doors. You shouldn't have these disagreements and you shouldn't have these fights out in the open. And so if someone can live without the mask, then we're going to have to live without the mask. Or if someone can't live without that mask, the other partner is going to have to deal with the um, pain of convincing a three-year-old to keep a mask on. But I, I think we're all experiencing two things that we have to understand is in the environment. It's almost in the air. And that is COVID fatigue and COVID uncertainty. So I'm old enough and unfortunately was on the front line with 9-11. So at the time I was the head of the NYU Child Study Center and we were ready for all the survivors and all the patients who are going to come to NYU since we were so close to ground zero. And there, no one came. And what we learned in 24 hours was that we had victims who were near ground zero. We had victims who were traumatized by the loss of a parent or an uncle or a neighbor, and there were 3000 deaths. And so what happened was it was very circumscribed and we started to recognize what we had to do to help those kids and those relatives get through this. And it did take a while, but the rest of the nation wasn't with us in the respect they sympathized, they empathized, but you could escape. You could get on an airplane and go to California or go to Chicago or go to Florida, and they didn't feel it the same way we did. The difference here is the world has COVID fatigue and has COVID uncertainty. The COVID uncertainty is the fact that um, and I'm going to be a little political, 
is that the federal government was giving us constant mixed messages. The CDC and Dr. Fauci were saying one thing and the president was saying another. And, uh, and certainly Dr. Atlas was saying crazy things. And that really makes us uncomfortable when people don't tell us the truth. If someone says to us, you have another month or you have another eight months, you've got to hold your breath, you have to suck it in, you can get through this. It's amazing how we as human beings can make the sacrifice to get through that tunnel. The good news now is that it looks like science is in charge, that the two trans the transition team is talking to the COVID team and we're talking about a vaccine, we're talking about safety measures, we're gonna have some data that's gonna come out. All of that will decrease COVID uncertainty. But what Abby just said that the rules are changing or the information is changing, that makes us uncomfortable and that makes us uncertain. And it, it makes people who by nature might be a little bit worried, more worried. So do we really need to wear a mask outside? Do we, do is six feet enough or do we have to be 10 feet away? You know, do we really have to talk in a low voice or can we sing? Do you mean, um, those are the things that the more certainty we have, the better we'll feel, we will calm down. Now we won't eliminate risk completely, but there'll be acceptable risk. The other part is COVID fatigue. It's exhausting. This is just, you know, the 9-11 feels like a sprint for God's sakes. It was easy in retrospect compared to the marathon I'm running in now. And I feel like and anyone who's run a race and I've never run a marathon, but I've run a 10K. And I can tell you the second 5K, the second half is never as easy as the first half. So this second half is not gonna be easy but we need to psychologically get a second wind and a third wind to get us to the finish line. And, and that means we, as parents, we have to keep tagging each other and saying, I'm just too exhausted right now. And I don't think, by the way, it's bad to show a kid that you're wiped out, They're, especially if you verbalize it. If you say, I'm sorry, I'm so irritable, or I'm sorry, I can't, or I'm weepy. I'm just sorry, I need a timeout. And then to explain to your child what you're doing. You know, I went to read a book. I actually called my mom, I went for a run, you know, and we should talk about self-care because, you know, every time you go on an airplane, they always say something that says, it seems anti-empirical to me that if the oxygen level drops in the plane and the masks come down, that you're supposed to put it on yourself first, not on your child. It makes sense, but my gut feeling would be, of course, I would put it on my child first, but if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be able to take care of your first child, your second child, or whoever else is, is sitting next to you. And I think during this COVID fatigue, we start giving up. We, we're, we're not watching our food intake. We're not exercising. We don't keep good sleep hygiene. And those things actually make us less effective as parents. So if we're, if we're gonna talk about some rules, well, I think you have to go to bed the same time every night. You have to force yourself to get up every day at the same time. If you're working from home, I mean, you do have to go take a shower and shave and brush your teeth and pretend it's, it's as real as if you were going to the office. I mean, Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, is a big supporter of the Childline Institute, and he thinks we should have an auction for an extreme makeover from our belly button up because no one is looking anymore at what we're wearing, whether we're wearing pants or socks and shoes. But I think we have to, for our, for our children's sake, to keep a routine going. And Let me just that add routine that. is really important. 
Yeah, I think that sometimes people say that they almost feel like it's indulgent to be worried about themselves right now. Um, and you're basically reframing it as kind of your health is going to affect the child's health. So can you address just that sense of, I, how can I meditate right now, even though that might calm me? I can't, you know, I don't have time to meditate. I have to, I have right. to do too many things, take care of too many things. So, and then the other side of it, which I saw from one of your doctors, um, again, on the website was saying that ultimately a child is absorbing your anxiety more than you realize. And right. I think that's a very bracing idea for us parents that, you know, we have our own stuff, but we think we're sort of masking it. And sometimes we're actually doing a very poor job of that. And even though you're saying we have to get, we have to be honest about, I need a break right now. Sometimes it isn't so helpful for a child to, abs to absorb our worry, our degree so, of fear. But, but I think it all depends on the framing of that. So I think it's perfectly okay to tell a child that you're having a tough time if you model how you're taking care of yourself. So for instance, I don't think you need to know how to do transcendental meditation. I think everyone here can learn how to do mindfulness. What I would suggest is if you want to, and I'll explain to you why mindfulness is so helpful in an uncertain time, because thinking about the future, thinking about tomorrow, thinking about eight months from now is anxiety provoking. And if we can be in the minute, literally in the minute, it's okay. It, there's no, it, you just are in the minute. So all I would recommend for you to do, and if you could do this three times a day, so it's only three minutes, is to sit in a room without anybody else there, close your eyes for one minute and don't fight your thoughts. So if bad thoughts come in, good thoughts come in, no judgment, let the thoughts come in and out and be very aware of your surroundings. If you can feel your heart beating, if you can hear the sounds of your breath, if you hear the birds singing, if you hear the traffic, whatever it is, just be in the minute for, you know, be mindful of the minute for one minute. And if you could do that three times, four times a day, that is very anxiety relieving. And by the way, your kids can do that too. A five-year-old can do that, especially if you time it. And letting you settle down, kind of getting the default mechanism to be just calm is really very effective, especially when the world seems to be falling apart and there's nothing we can do about it. So we can be in that minute. The second thing that I would highly recommend, especially, you know, Abby and Dave are very fit. You know, they, they love to exercise, I know that. But for the rest of us who don't necessarily love to exercise, it is really essential that we spend 20 minutes every day doing something cardio. And if, you know, a brisk walk, uh, getting on the treadmill, um, doing some jumping jacks, um, doing sit-ups, doing something that will cause you to sweat is actually very, very good for your brain. The way to think about this concretely, it's like flushing new blood through your brain. And every time you have a new cycle of blood going through your brain, that's good for your brain, new oxygen going through your brain. And, um, and, and that's hard for, for those of us who don't love to exercise, this becomes another task. So I would suggest you do it in an easy way. So a 20 minute walk while you listen to an audible book or while you listen to music or to a podcast, so it's not painful. But again, sleep hygiene, trying to get seven to eight hours a night, trying to go to bed at the same time, trying to wake up at the same time, trying to do 20 minutes of some kind of physical exercise every day, and trying to also you know, do some mindfulness, three minutes, four minutes, and what not to do, 
I would highly recommend that you don't spend more than 30 minutes a day watching cable news. And I would only watch it in 10 minute bites. It is- Let's just talk about, about media for a minute because you had okay. mentioned social media and even for young kids, you know, that's often just how they're passing the time. And sometimes you might say, I would say it's okay to watch a movie, et cetera, but it's sometimes becoming not just a refuge, but a little bit of a, a compulsion. And a How, numbing. It's actually numbing. It's not. It's are, not a healthy numbing. It's like Novocaine. Like, give us the. Give us the lowdown. So, let, so let's talk about. Let's just talk about some. So let's just stick for a second with self care. The reason why you don't want to watch anything that's just going to agitate you is that again, it creates more uncertainty. So ten minutes, three times a day, you know what's going on, and then you, you let it go. But watching a movie actually is not a bad idea. So I think parents of school age children. So let's talk about first grade to about, you know, you could go all the way to 12th grade, but certainly to eighth grade, I would actually suggest that there be a movie night uh, once a week. And you as a family decide what the movie is. Now, that might give your kid an opportunity to watch To Kill a Mockingbird, but more likely you're going to have to watch Ace, Ace Ventura uh, another time. Do you mean? And, and try not to roll your eyes while, while you're watching it. But Doing something, watching a movie together is actually an active thing because you're not in a movie theater. You can actually talk. You can actually share the experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think, it's, I think it's worthwhile. I also like the idea of it being a routine. So if it's every Thursday night or every Friday night or every Sunday afternoon, setting a routine and creating that context for your child is very helpful. I would also suggest that pizza night on Wednesday or... Uh, Sunday bagels and locks. It doesn't really make a difference. Getting routines going when the world is out of routine is very, very healthy. So now let's talk about social media. So before COVID, the Child Mind Institute did a study on problematic internet usage, PIU. We didn't publish it in a peer-reviewed journal. We published it in Time Magazine because we wanted more eyeballs on it. So it turns out that there are lots of kids between the ages of six and 18 who are spending six to eight hours or more on social media every day. And if you think that that's unusual, all you have to do is take your kid's device. There are not a lot of six-year-olds who use those devices, but there are certainly a lot of 11-year-olds who do. And you can see how many hours they are, they're looking at social, they're doing social media. The, what makes it problematic is when you take it away from someone and they feel deprivation. It's almost like taking away tobacco or taking away alcohol, they get distressed. So if you find that hard to believe, watch the next time you're on the Long Island Railroad or you're, on the, you're in an airport or you're on a bus post COVID and some child is watching a video or is playing some kind of video game to keep them occupied. They could be five, they could be six, they have earpieces on and their parents are about to arrive wherever they're supposed to, and they stop the child from doing it, and the kid has a temper tantrum. It is clearly a neurochemical event. They are feeling a deprivation that is different than turning the TV off when I was younger. It is clearly somehow they have, their brain has gotten used to the stimulation of the dopamine surge that is unhealthy. And so that's why when you look at the guidelines, 
of how some people are suggesting that children shouldn't look at screens until they're eight years old or five years old. It's because there's such a sensitivity to the brain when you look at that kind of media. It just has a different kind of effect on young people's brains. So now we have COVID. But during COVID, I think the rules have to be changed because all of a sudden we're using the screen for distance learning and we're also using the screen for socialization. But that still doesn't mean there aren't any guidelines. You still have to take the devices away from your kid, no matter how old they are at nighttime. You have to give them a break. It just has to be a break from your brain and the social media. There also has to be at least 30 minutes while you're having dinner or lunch or whatever the meal is that you share where no one looks at their phone. And it would be okay to be concrete about it and put a basket in the middle of the dining room table and have everyone put their phone there. I mean, it seems simplistic, but it's very hard to stop looking. I know that when I'm traveling, I'm constantly looking, when there's a free moment, I'm looking at CNN. I don't know what's, what news is happening that I have to keep checking, but if I look at my phone at the end of the day, I can see that I checked it 25 or 30 times, that it's almost compulsive. So you have to, for, and now where there's more dead time and less interaction, you use those phones more often. So I think you need to sit down and have a conversation as to what is acceptable social media behavior for your child. And certainly for sleep hygiene, you have to put those phones away. Uh, when people at my age get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, there's no need to check your phone. You, you know, nothing, even as a child psychiatrist, if they really need me, they'll phone me. The phone will ring and they'll wake me up. I don't need to go check what emails I got or, or, or what's going on in the news. And I think we have to model that. And I, it, these are easily breakable bad habits. Yeah. So let me just, I wanna to go to some of the questions and I wanna reassure people that when you just text chat me privately, I, I'm not naming uh, the questioner. So you can put anything in there um, and I'll ask uh, Dr. Kofowitz in the time we have. Before we return to questions, I just wanna go back to now, not the, the child who might be at risk of suicide, but, but when is the turning point for any, anyone who has a, a child that's struggling of any age when you say you've got to get that child help, this is not a phase which a lot of us parents think, oh. well, maybe they'll outgrow it. Maybe this is just a time, COVID especially, well, everyone's just now, so I'm not gonna get my kid treatment because I'm assuming this is gonna pass. I'm assuming this is just an unusual moment. When is the inflection point where you're saying, actually you've waited too long or you, you know, it's only in the child's interest to get help sooner? So let's, Let's be very specific about this. It's about distress and dysfunction. It's an unhappy, so your child loves baseball or your child loves hot Harry Potter books and all of a sudden stops reading Harry Potter books. It doesn't seek out enjoyment. He's not getting pleasure. You have a child who sleeps normally <clears throat> and now is waking up or can't fall asleep or is sleeping during the daytime their appetite has changed. They're overeating or they're undereating. Their concentration has disappeared. They always could focus. Now they've lost their focus, <clears throat> excuse me. And so I would tell you those kind of changes that are causing either distress or dysfunction that last for two weeks and it's every day for two weeks, that's a red flag. Now the average parent in the United States 
waits two years from the onset of symptoms till the time they reach out to a mental health professional. I think that has a lot to do with insurance coverage. I think it has a lot to do with stigma. It has a lot to do with you know, wishful thinking. But I would tell you that it's much easier to treat a symptom that's a few weeks old than a symptom that's two years old or five years old or six years old. The reason why the Child Mind Institute's results are so much better than adult clinics is that they're, first of all, the brains of kids work a lot better than adults, and we have fresher symptoms than someone who has a 20-year-old symptom. So I would tell you, be alert right now, because if something bad is going on for two weeks, the only silver lining I see of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic is telemental health. All of a sudden, you can reach out and you can get a mental health professional within days and, and you don't have to travel and you don't have to worry about, you know, traffic and going someplace. All of a sudden, we're seeing kids from across the nation. And I don't think there's a single academic medical center that is not doing telemental health right now. So that barrier has broken down. And, and we have a simple way for you to look at this. We have a symptom checker on childmind.org. It takes about 10 to 20 minutes to fill out. If you fill it what out, it? it's the symptom, a symptom checker. And you go to childmind.org, it's right there on the front page and fill it out on your kid. And if the results shows that it could be one of three things or four things and it's not mild, don't ignore it. You know, the best thing could happen is that you waste the time and effort and the funds to check your kid out and find out that nothing is wrong. And uh, that, that's, that's like the worst outcome. The best outcome could also be that you have something and it's treatable. It's real, it's common, it's treatable. You know, uh, that's, you know, if, just think about it. If while we're on the phone right now, on this conversation, you develop a rash. I say something and you trigger, triggers off a rash. By the end of the evening, you will figure out how to get some cortisone and you'll put it on your, you're gonna get rid of that rash. And if the rash isn't gone in a few days, you're gonna call your doctor. And if your internist can't get rid of it, and within a few more days, you'll be a dermatologist. Why should we treat a rash with more seriousness and with more significance than we would treat a child who can't pay attention or a kid who's so worried that he can't stop washing his hands or a teenager who's so irritable that they, they feel uncomfortable in their own skin. So. You know, I, I think that there's so much we could do for a kid who's suffering from COVID, but if it goes over that line, please reach out and get some help. I think that's so helpful. And I think what, when you pose that, that rhetorical question, you know that the answer often is the stigma, that parents want to present a, not necessarily a perfect front, no one can have a perfect front right now, but certainly a polished one, one that's together, your kids are together, they're high functioning, they're playing sports, they're still doing their extracurriculars, they're still getting great grades. It's, it's often not the thing you want to share. And as soon as you are asking for help, you're admitting a certain vulnerability. Can you address very yeah. briefly, I know it's a big question, but I wanna to get to the people's questions. So, so let's, let's, everyone on this screen, please take one piece of information. If you have a school-aged child, can you please reassess their academic productivity for this year. This is not the year for, real, uh, for unrealistic goals. This is not going to be a normal year for academic productivity. Whether your kid is going to school every day at Hackley or is doing online education at Dalton or is doing 
you know, asynchronized learning in a public school, this is not the year for normal academic productivity. That's the bad news. The good news is all your children have great brains and come the summer or September, we will catch up. America will catch up academically. You know, your kids will learn everything they have to learn and colleges and everyone will recognize this was an extraordinary situation. But unless we reassess our expectations for their academic productivity, it's another stressor that we're putting on our family that is totally unnecessary. And if you have a 20 year old, I would tell the 20 year old, let's have new expectations for your romance and for your socialization this year. This is not the year to, for hookups. This is the year to have a different, a different way of thinking about you know, your socialization. So the stigma. I think America's getting better at this. You know, and, and Abby, what I would use is that in 2017, the Chaman Institute started a campaign called Hashtag My Younger Self. We asked famous people to give us a minute to two minute video of them talking to their younger self about their mental health disorder or their learning disorder. And so A, you had to get celebrities to come out of the closet to say, yes, I have anxiety or yes, I have autism or yes, I have... So the first year, 50% of all the celebrities had dyslexia. It turns out dyslexia is not that bad. So then Lieutenant Governor Newsom, now Governor Newsom told us about his dyslexia, so did Jay Leno, so did Barbara Corcoran. In 2018, half of the people talked about their anxiety and that they had debilitating anxiety disorders. And in 2019, more than half talked about their depression. So we were moving in the right direction and now in 2020, we morphed that campaign into hashtag, we thrive inside. We went to lots of people and said, how are you trying to maintain your mental health while COVID is going on? And we got 275 million people to watch those videos. So I would tell you the people watching those videos were not just worried about COVID, they were also worried about how they're doing and how we were offering, by the way, Facebook lives on how to parent during COVID. So I, I think we're in the right direction. But yeah. I think that the worst thing a parent can do is not accept what their child's limitations are or what their child's assets are. So think about it. Wouldn't it be unbelievable if your kid had a gift for math and you didn't promote them to go into the, the math team or if they had a gift for languages and you didn't encourage them to take a second language? But if they have a deficit, if they really have trouble reading or if they have, a trouble, if they have trouble with social anxiety, pretending they don't have it just makes the message that you're giving to your kid is that they're supposed to be not only struggle with it, but to be ashamed of it. And I, I would hope that in 2020, I think the takeaway is since so many of us, including Michelle Obama, who just wrote about it, are struggling with light depression or demoralization or anxiety have some more compassion for a whole bunch of other Americans who struggle with these feelings when there's no COVID. And that, that the, the message should be that mental health is as important as physical health. And if that's the only thing that comes out of this, you know, a horrible pandemic, but at least we're evolving into a more sophisticated society. So one of the questions, um, I'm gonna to get to these now and, and I'll just interject my last questions as well, um, which I think is an important one. What if your adolescent kid does not believe that he or she has a problem? <clears throat> yeah, so 
so what's adolescence about? Adolescence is 12 years old to 24 and uh, opportunity is more important than risk. I mean, just think about it. There's a reason Hertz doesn't let you rent a car until you're 25. You know, they, you know they, at 25, we learned to put a seatbelt on, put a condom on and put a helmet on, right? And before that, we're invulnerable. You know, we, we get piercings and tattoos, we dye our hair blue. There's so many things we do that don't make sense. And because we see opportunity, not risk. And so I think it's really important that the message parents have to tell their kid is it my job to make sure that you're healthy and you seem more irritable or you seem to have more difficulty with schoolwork now than ever before, or you seem to be sadder than usual. And I, as your parent, worry that if you're not doing well, then it's part of our family's obligation to get you help. So we're gonna go as a family to check this out. And, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is just you're being moody for the moment, but I, it's my job. If you were bleeding, if you were wheezing, if you were seizing, I would make sure that you would get help. And that's why we're gonna do this because of how much I love you. And, and, and it's not gonna be easy because remember, as a teenager, you wanna be just like everyone else. Do you remember when your mother said to you, I, you know, I would say, oh, I wanna wear tight jeans like everyone else. And my mother said, oh, what are you, cattle? If everyone was jumping off the George Washington Bridge, would you jump off? Most probably, because <laughs> I wanna be just like everybody else. And so, you know, I don't want to be different. I don't want to have a mental health disorder. I don't want to have a learning disability. I want to be like everyone else. But it's my job as your parent to make sure your life is as comfortable and as easy as possible. And it seems like there's interference right now. There's something that's just, just making life too hard for you. Okay. I know that, um, that Harold, you have been, a, you know, in favor of medication when it is indicated, not right. as a reflex, <coughs> not as an automatic. Um, right. and, and you're always saying that therapy has to work with medication, but some parents have seen that there is an over-prescribing or what they perceive as over-prescribing going on right now for children. So can you just address, I know these are big subjects, so as compactly okay. as you can. So, so let's do fact versus fiction. So the tendency is that we're actually under-medicating children in the United States who have psychiatric disorders. The myth is that we over-medicate kids in Los Angeles and New York because there's so many parents who want their kids to be high functioning. And if they give them psychostimulants like Adderall or Ritalin or Dexedrin, they'll do better in school. So if you look at the numbers, it turns out that there are more prescriptions written for psychostimulants, those Ritalin-like drugs in states that are not New York or California. They are in states that adopted President George W. Bush's Leave No Child Behind because those states get more money to their schools for more kids staying in the seats in those schools. So it turns out that more pediatricians in those states write prescriptions for psychostimulants than in states that didn't pass that law. So it turns out that medicine, now because of the stigma of medication, the Child Mind Institute does not accept money from big pharma, but simultaneously doesn't take money from drugs, from liquor or tobacco but we go one step further. We don't let drug rec representatives come on the grounds of the Child Mind Institute. And the reason for that is that inevitably they're attractive, handsome, articulate, and they bring pens and food. And what happens is that instead of prescribing Prozac, which is a 
an old SSRI that has been around since 1988 and more than a million kids have taken it, you land up prescribing Lexapro or Celexa, which is a new SSRI, which costs six or 10 times as much. And so it would be much better for doctors to prescribe medicine that has data and that they have an experience with than prescribe something that someone attractive and articulate has just spoken to about. So we're really clean and you can't be a little pregnant about this. So they're not allowed around. However, medicine does work miraculously for kids who have certain diagnoses. There are kids who have obsessive compulsive disorder who don't completely respond to psychosocial interventions like exposure, response prevention, type of cognitive behavioral therapy. When you give them an SSRI in a high dose, you can literally kill off the OCD. You can let this child who has a disease in the caudate nucleus deep in the brain, uh, an ancient structure in their brain, the ganglia, uh, in the ganglia, that literally you need to give them more serotonin availability, it makes a world of difference. When you have a kid who has bad ADHD and you give them a psychostimulant, their attention span will expand to almost average. They will never have the same attention span as the average kid. And if they have a normal or above average IQ, they will do significantly better in school. And better still is that if you give medication to a young child who has ADHD and you give medication and you wait until 12 to give a kid that same medicine and you wait until they become adults and you compare their brains with brain scans to normal controls, you will find out that the six-year-olds who are now adults will have brains that are similar to normal controls versus the 12-year-olds. And the second thing you'll find out is that they're less likely to use illicit drugs. So the myth that if we give kids psychiatric medicine, we're teaching them how to use drugs and therefore they'll be more at risk for using illicit substances is actually a myth. So again, I think that there are cases where kids get medicine that haven't been prior, prior, uh, properly diagnosed, but if they have the right diagnosis and they have the right treatment package, medicine can truly be life-saving. And here's the best news. If I got clinically depressed and I had to take an SSRI like Prozac or Celexa or Lexapro, chances are I would have to take it for years because I have an old brain. And yet, when you have a young brain under the age of 24 and you give that child the right kind of cognitive behavioral therapy along with medication, 71% of the kids get better in 12 weeks. And if you keep that child on the same medicine for one year and slowly take them off, they will be better and they won't get a second depressive episode. So the fact that brains, young brains are so receptive to these medicines when given properly, one really has to be well-educated before we say, My, I don't believe in medicine. You know what I mean? You might not like it, but sometimes medicine is really important. And, and you wouldn't tell your oncologist, I'm sorry, we're not gonna use chemotherapy. We're only doing surgery and radiation. I think you have to have some faith and confidence in that if you go to a good or well-trained child psychiatrist, that they're going to make the right diagnosis and then give you as parents choices and, and statistics on what works and what doesn't work. I'm sorry, I'm so Great. passionate about it, but uh, it really bothers I'm me when we eliminate something that works. <laughs> okay, I am hearing conflicting things. This is a question. One is keep things simple, give your kids routine, keep things as normal as possible. and.
that will help. The other is the kids are suffering from not doing enough, not enough stimulation, interaction, play, they're deprived of sensory input, et cetera. So how should we reconcile the two? Great question. Well, I, I think your kids will suffer a little bit from the second thing, and we can try to substitute it with outdoor play. We can put them in the playground. We can play with them more. We can kick. I, I was walking in Central Park recently and saw that there were a whole bunch of five and six-year-olds doing soccer drills, and they were all wearing masks. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And moms were wearing masks and watching. So, you know, there are ways around this that we're going to have to find out. And even if you were not the most athletic, I think we're going to have to go out and play with our kids more. Um, and we're going to also have to pull out board games that we haven't seen in 20 years. But, you know, Monopoly should come out. Here's the good news for any of you who have young children. The kids under five are having the time of their life. They are spending more time with mom and dad and they are enjoying it. I, trust me, they're not, no matter how good Central Synagogue is uh, with their nursery school, they love being with their parents. And no matter how good your nanny is or your daycare, kids love being with mommy and daddy. And so I'm more concerned about what happens when COVID's over and they have to go back and mom and dad are going to work for eight or 10 hours a day. So I wouldn't worry about kids under five. I would worry about kids from five to 12 about how they're learning and the challenges. I mean, my wife is a, a middle school art teacher at Dalton and teaching art on a website, you know, on a screen, I, it's almost like a reality television show where all of a sudden, you know, Jason, where did you go? You left the screen. You know, Miss Ciro, I'm sorry, I have focus problems, you know, and she's saying, can we start with a chair without wheels, but getting kids to have all the kind of, all the materials and keeping them focused and, and, and literally after 15 minutes, she has to do a stretch exercise with them is really very challenging. So I would think that there are lots of kids who are just putting their head down on the desk, that it's just too much for them. And I would say, relax, we'll fix that this summer or in the fall. I'm more worried about the teenagers. I really think their losses are greater and, you know, and they don't get to make it up. You don't get your junior prom again. You don't get your senior prom. You know, these, re these graduations where people are honking the horn, they just seem bogus to me. You know, it's kind of like, it's okay. It's, I'm glad you found a substitute, but they are the ones who are taking the big loss. And frankly, not anyone on the screen, but I'm really worried about poor kids who are in New York City public schools and are barely holding on academically before COVID. And once they let go, they fall into this pit. You know, that's all I can imagine is a pit where how are we gonna pull them out of that pit after COVID and get them back into high school, get them a GAD, get them a high school diploma. I, I think those are the kids that we should really be concerned about. Um, our kids will be okay. We be vigilant, give them more structure, give them a little more leeway. Um, but there is gonna be a part of society that's really gonna suffer because of this. They were marginal before and you know, once they let go, we, we as a society, I think have an obligation to help them back out of that hole to, you need that high school diploma. Forget about college, you just, first and foremost, we need a high school diploma. You know, um, there's a, a lot of central members who are volunteers at a public school near central. And we've had to be mentoring high school seniors virtually. And it's exactly what you're describing. It's, first of all, really difficult to get responsiveness. They often don't even turn on their cameras. They don't necessarily want us to see their homes. And, and, and they are not, they don't have that. It, it, there clearly isn't the same kind of bedrock stability at home. And it's exactly, it feels like they're 
they're slipping through the cracks. Like it was hard enough already. Um, so that resonates. But go back, Abigail, Abby, we were just talking about demoralization. If you're really, in a, if your baseline isn't good and you get demoralized, you start to feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's really what we're avoiding. We don't want kids to get hopeless. Demoralized is okay. It feels bad, vent, tell me what's bothering you. Let's try to find some solutions. We can still be grateful. But if the baseline was so bad to begin with and you get demoralized, I, I don't want someone to give up hope. I'm not talking about suicide. I'm talking about school. I'm talking about you know, function, you know, having a, a positive attitude about the future. You know, that's what I don't want to lose. And what about the, the monosyllabic child of any age? The one who really just, we talked about the, the kid who won't necessarily acknowledge they have a problem, but then there's the kid that you really can't talk to very easily anymore. And, you know, they're like, leave me alone or I want to be in my room, I'm fine. But you're just not getting feedback, communication. They're just not talking to you. Right. What's So, what's so I, first of all, I think there are certain questions we can ask and we can't ask so that, you know, just pretend you have a difficult dinner partner at some difficult dinner party and so if you ask questions like, you know, how was school today? They're going to say good, bad, okay. If you're gonna ask something specific, you're more likely to get a conversation going. And if you share something about what you're experiencing, there's also a chance that you'll get something. But simultaneously, I think it's only fair that some teenagers and some young adults, there's a whole bunch of college students who are living in their middle school bedrooms right now and I think they're just sick and tired of their parents. Do you know what I mean? They, they, no matter how much they love us, they're just sick and tired. And so giving them a little space or letting them have dinner without us, uh, you know, and letting them eat in the kitchen or we'll eat in the kitchen or, we'll, you know, letting them order in, doing something like that where they have a little bit of space and they're Zooming with someone, I think makes a lot of sense. So I, I think there's so much closeness and togetherness now we have to recognize that that's a little unusual considering that the typical adolescent, one of the tasks of adolescence is separating from mom and dad. We don't expect them to run out of the house, but we do expect them to find the peer group to be more important. We expect them to socialize and we're, we're kind of cramping their style. So I, I think it makes sense to have conversations. I don't think we should pull teeth. Um, I just think we should ask questions that are very specific that can get real answers open-ended questions like how was school is not going to work. Uh, telling them something specific about your day and asking for their opinion might actually make more sense. Um, someone is asking uh, regarding working parents. I myself am so fatigued, this person says, with a demanding job that has become more demanding during the pandemic. Add to that helping with remote learning in my non-existent quote spare time. I feel like I have little energy left to support my children's emotional well-being. Are there high impact, low effort ways to give them what they need emotionally when they are when we are so exhausted as caregivers? So let's go back to self-care. Uh, I would tell you before I would give to my kids and put the mask on myself. So if there's a moment. If, if, you, if you have the energy to wake up a little earlier and go for a walk or, you know, get on, go, get on a bicycle or do some, you know, yoga, I would rather you do that than figure, that's the highest impact you're going to get. And, and then I would say I would make stuff meaningful. That if I'm going to spend an hour with my kid, it's going to be fun. You know, 
I'm not going to force them to play Monopoly. I'm going to let them pick the game. I'm going to watch the TV program they want. We're going to discuss what's going on. I'm going to be alert during that period. And I am not going to look at my iPhone. I'm going to make sure that if I'm only got 60 minutes with them or 30 minutes with them, it's going to be, it's going to be like on a date. I'm going to be so focused that, you know, the kid is going to really appreciate those 30 minutes. But the first thing I would do is some self-care. It is exhausting. We are exhausted. Yeah. So these are going to be the last two questions just for time. It's time and yours, uh, Dr. Koplowitz. What guidance is there for children with medical conditions requiring that they do school remotely and the only interactions they have with friends is via online gaming together? It ends up being tons of screen time. Yeah. So I think the rules are changing now. I said that before and I would give kids more opportunity to do that. But I would also see if we can give them screen time where they're actually communicating with friends without the game. So, you know, uh, can, they, can they play chess? Can they play checkers? Can they do something that requires them to look at the other person instead of just looking at a screen where the other person is some make-believe character? Um, but again, I, I would be much more lenient now. I, I you know, I think we're going to have a wave of anxiety disorders when COVID's gone, I think we're going to see a lot more separation anxiety, see a lot more social anxiety, certainly going to see a lot more OCD. And I think that, you know, I would be kind and more lenient now, as long as it doesn't get to the point where it's addictive with those kinds of situations. Remember, for another few months, you know what I mean? And then, then we'll roll up our sleeves and we'll work on this together. Can I ask just, I'm just interjecting before the last question, because it, it keeps coming up. It's, it, are we right in assuming that social interaction is just crucial or are we overstating it for a kid? No, no, it, it, social interaction is really cr crucial for, and it means something different for different age groups. So I just said, if you're under five and you're not playing with a lot of friends, I mean, this is a New York phenomenon that we put, we, we apply to schools for two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds, you know, there were scandals. How many years ago was there a scandal at banks where people were paying people off to get into the 92nd Street Y. This is, this is absurd. So your, your most important social re interactions with your parents and the fact that you get a lot of time with your parents, especially if they're focused and playing with you and dancing with you and, uh, and playing, you know, doing art projects with you, th those kids are fine. But I would tell you peer interaction for school-age children and peer interaction, particularly for teenagers, is very important. And so let's do it outside. Look, we're going to have a dark, cold winter. That so bundle up, and they still can play outside. You know, um, you're not for all of you. By the way, I don't know about your social interaction. I like seeing friends. You know, I think New York with street. You know, eating on the street all of a sudden seems kind of amazing. It feels like I'm in Paris where you're eating the street. It's getting very cold. Okay, so let's have lunch together. Let's let's eat, you know let's go have a sandwich in Central Park uh, or on someone's patio you know, uh, instead of um, doing it at nighttime. But I, for all of us, social interaction is very important. And, and it, it's really not only important for mental health, it's important for well-being, mental health well-being. And so that's why we need to keep a balance of that. I, I worry about a lot of old people, you know, people who are afraid to leave the house. I think those are the people we have to teach them how to use Zoom. We have to call them more regularly. You know, if you have a friend or a relative, you really should be checking in with them and chatting with them and, and they know how to chat. 
And even if you have to put them on speakerphone and every once in a while say, uh-huh, it's okay. But, you know, I think you have to keep interactions with them. Okay. And last question, and just if we can keep it to a minute, if possible, how do we plan for the summer when we really don't know if our kids are going to be able to go to camp again safely? So our kids so will love them so much can... and they... So Abby, I think we have to plan for two things. So the Child Mind Institute is actually planning all of our August intensive programs. We have intensive programs for kids who have selective mutism, children who don't talk to anybody but mom and dad. All of those programs in August are, reg are registering kids. Our program in June for kids with ADHD, we're still registering, but we're not sure. We've already rented a place, but we're ready. We have insurance because we might cancel it. So I think we're gonna have to have multiple options. I warned you all that I am dangerously optimistic. So I believe that in April and May, we will have an opportunity for the population to get vaccinated. Um, I would hope, I'm, I would hope that the Biden administration is gonna have a great public service campaign to convince people to get vaccinated. I think we should get a whole bunch of famous people and a whole bunch of, you know, Tom Brady and his beautiful wife should get vaccinated and we should get a whole bunch of movie stars. And I would love to see President Trump vaccinated and President Biden. I would like this to be apolitical and that this is, I want, if Fauci gets vaccinated at 80, we should all get vaccinated. You know, that's what we need. We, we need to get 60% of the population. But I think, Abby, the news looks like April, May, there will be enough of these two different vaccines out there. And maybe even a third one, if uh, AstraZeneca can straighten out their, you know, re redo the results and see if there's something there. But I think this is gonna be a great summer. I think it might not be as perfect as we want, but I, my real optimism is we're going back to school in September. We're, we're, we're back, you know, the 1.1 million kids. You know, we've been working with the New York, I think New York City public schools for all the bashing that Mayor de Blasio is taking, it's amazing. We opened up the largest public school system in the world for a few weeks, and we're gonna reopen it now. And very few people know that the public schools, the Department of Education got a contract with Chama Institute where we provided webinars for 75,000 public school teachers and a digital toolkit, wellness toolkit for 1.1 million kids in two different languages. So that's a pretty sophisticated school system. We didn't go to them. They came to us. So, you know, this is going to work out. It's just going to be a little bumpy, a little dark, but I think it's our job as parents to, to put some guardrails up and, and we will get through this and we'll play some more Monopoly and we'll watch Ace Ventura a few more times and we'll have to deal with our moody teenager and give him or her a little space. But please watch out for bad symptoms. You I mean, the difference between demoralization and depression is serious. And so don't hesitate, take advantage of the fact that we now have telemental health. I, I don't think by the way, Abby, that's ever going away. I, I think we'll, some of us will still wanna see our mental health professional in person, but I think this option is gonna be there for lots of people. Abby, thank you so much for doing this. And, and Rabbi Angela, thank you, wherever you are, thank you for taking care of this. And for everyone who joined and took their time and um, take care of your kids, take care of yourselves, meditate, and get some Mindfulness, sleep and, and yes. don't eat as many as I'm eating. And if, <laughs> if there's, all. If there's anything care. we can do for you,
as your clergy and as Central, do not hesitate to be in touch with us. Um, we want to be there to support you. And I think going to services might count as mindfulness. I don't know. So uh, join us at any of our services. Hopefully they will bring some joy and calm to your life as well. So thank you. And thank you so much to Abby and Dr. Koplowitz for everything. Um, it was fascinating and informative and helpful and uh, in, enlivening to my soul. So thank you so much. And oh, thank um, you. Have a wonderful happy night. Hanukkah. Yes, happy Hanukkah. And I'd always praise your name. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Hello, hello.